Well, this morning I'm excited that we get a chance to wrap up Hebrews chapter 11. If you don't know this about the Mission Church, you need to know that we hold an uncompromising commitment to the Word of God, unwavering. That means that if the Bible says it, we believe it. If God commands it, we obey it. It's just that simple to us. That's why we love expository preaching, expository. When I say expository, what that simply means is that the point of the text is the point of the sermon. And on the occasion that that certain texts bring up questions we need to deal with, we say it that way. Hey, this is not the main point, but this is something you might need to know. And we bring it right back to the main point. Well, Hebrews chapter 11 has been telling us this great list of faithful saints in the Old Testament. And in this conclusion, in this summary of the chapter, the author makes it super clear as to why it is he's been giving us this whole list. He gives us the big point, the main idea of this text. And so that's what we're going to hammer out today. Over the course of the last uh, month and a half or so, we've been going through Hebrews 11 at a rate of about one verse per sermon. Well, today we're going to do nine verses, so buckle up. Here we go. I'm going to go ahead and read Hebrews 11:32 through 40 out loud. We're going to go back through the text, and I'm just going to bring out a few observations and then practical applications that I hope will serve us well as we conclude Hebrews 11 today. Read through the text, pray, and then dive back in. If you have your Bibles, follow along, starting in verse 32. Hebrews 11:32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as we see the kind of conclusion of this list of the Old Testament saints, I pray that we would drink it in. I pray that we would see the big point, why it is that this spirit-inspired author would deliver this to the, the saints back in the first century and why it still matters for us today. Father, whatever bridges we need to build in our mind to, to gain all the insight that would be helpful for us today, I pray that you would do that. God, I know that that's a supernatural ask, and so as always, we ask that you would send your spirit to equip us to understand this text. Help us to see it in light of why you put it here, and help us to apply it to our lives so that today, tomorrow, the rest of this next week and beyond, we would we'd be better lovers of you and more faithful believers. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go back to the beginning of that text we just read out loud. I'm just going to do the first few verses again. Verses 32 through 35. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, 
enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. I'm going to pause there. The author concludes this famous roll call of faith with a representative list that serves to summarize the rest of the Old Testament story. He sort of machine guns through this list to make the point that there are many faithful saints who lived out their faith in some way worthy of our imitation today. Now, if you were to go through that list that we started back in Hebrews 11.1, 1, you'll see that he's given 10 specific names. He's given other groups as well, but there's 10 names called out. And in this section, he adds six more, as well as a bunch of historical events. Gideon, Barak, and Jephthah were all military leaders chosen by God to win battles against Israel's enemies during the days of the judges. Samson was the strongest man in the Old Testament who single-handedly laid Philistine armies to waste. David killed the giant Goliath with a single stone and became the most beloved king in Israel's history. Samuel was the prophet who prophesied during the days of King David. He would be followed by many more prophets who would deliver messages from God to his people even when they did not like what God had to say. Through these people, God did many mighty works worthy of our remembrance. That's why they're recalled here again. But what is being recalled to our minds in this list is the faithfulness of those involved. So we ought not get distracted just by the stories, just by the events. We must remember that it was God who did all these things through faithful people. In other words, it wasn't Noah's ark that saved Noah's family. It was God's ark that Noah built. It wasn't Sarah who opened her barren womb, but God who opened Sarah's womb. It wasn't Moses who parted the Red Sea on behalf of his people. It was God. It wasn't Joshua who knocked down the walls of Jericho. It was God who did that work. It wasn't David who killed Goliath, but God who did it through David. All of these people made it into this list because of what God did. They got to be a part of the story because they put their trust not in themselves, but in God. Can you imagine what our valley would be like? If all the Christians in Salt Lake County were to live out their faith in the way that these Old Testament saints lived out theirs? I dream about this. Some of the saints that were listed here for us only have a single paragraph written about them in the entirety of sacred scripture. Even those who are a bit more high profile, those who have more written about them, you could read their entire lifetime story in the Bible in a single sitting, maybe in an afternoon. If your life were to be summarized, written down for generations to come, what would it say? Sometimes it's good for us to remember just how small we are in the grand scheme of things. The only way that you and I are going to make any impact at all is if we put our trust in a giant God and not in ourselves. You know, don't you, that there's no shortage of self-aggrandizing, self 
involved people, egotists in our world. Social media is absolutely filled with them, and unfortunately, so many churches too. Modern Americans have an absolute love affair with the self. Throughout history, many societies have come and gone who've worshipped false gods. Whole nations have gone to temples and built private shrines, gone to high places to worship their idols. Some have even built those shrines to the false gods in their own living rooms so they can continue their daily acts of worship without the inconvenience of leaving the house. But we may be among the first group of people in the world who hang an image of our gods over our bathroom sink. The American people find our gods in the mirror. We belong to a lineage of people as believers, though. As Christians, we belong to a whole line, a list of people who have lived to make more of God than of self. So again, can you imagine what Utah would look like if Christians took that charge seriously? If we were more concerned about what people thought about God than what people thought about us. If we were more concerned about him receiving praise than ourselves. John 15, verse 8. I'm reading through a Bible reading plan with the family this summer. Taking time together with the kids and even having the older kids read the text of Scripture out loud. So we're hearing it together and asking questions about it. This verse popped out this last week as we've been in the John chapter 15. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Our fruitfulness is not for us. Our fruitfulness is not even for other people. It's for God. That's the way that God will receive glory through us bearing fruit. This is so critical for us to acknowledge, and it's one of the starting points in us thinking rightly about the Great Commission. Christians can get even really good ideas started off on the wrong foot if we get this part wrong. Why should we pray for lost people? Why should we make disciples of the sinners of the world? Why should we proclaim the goodness of God and salvation in Jesus? Why should we do it? If the answer to that question, if the first answer that comes out of your mouth is, so that they will be saved, that is a weak footing. The reason that we are compelled to missions is because God deserves glory. God deserves praise. That's the starting point. The starting point is that he is so great, God deserves praise and worship from every mouth in all of Utah. That's why we proclaim the gospel primarily. There can be many times that in our own weaknesses, we're just not going to like our neighbor. We're not going to want for the most wicked people in our midst through our eyes as we see it to be saved. We're going to want judgment for others. But God deserves praise and glory and worship from the mouth of every single person. That's what compels us because he is worthy. He deserves that glory and that praise. Our fruitfulness is for him, not just for our good. We must believe in God's promises and we must act on that belief just like these faithful saints that we're seeing in this list in Hebrews 11. And then we're to leave the results up to God. But you may have noticed that about halfway through that list, things turn south. I paused halfway through verse 35. I'm going to pick up with the other half of verse 35 and go through 38. You can follow along with me there. Some of these faithful saints were tortured, refusing to accept release, 
so that they might rise again to better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Well, that took a turn for the worse. But this is actually super important for us because this part of the list here is to remind us that even faithful living is filled with affliction. The point of these stories, the reason Hebrews 11 is here is not to convey to us that a life of faithfulness is one without trials. The point is actually exactly the opposite. The author of Hebrews has been, throughout this entire book, encouraging his audience throughout this time to be prepared to suffer for the gospel. He's made many such mentions before. I'm just going to read one for you in Hebrews 10, 32 through 34. He said this, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. This whole text is meant to encourage us so that when we inevitably confront suffering, we will remember back to these saints who likewise endured all sorts of hardships and yet remain faithful. As the author is concluding this list, he makes sure that that is fresh in our minds. You need to know, though, that there are a lot of charlatans out there who preach health, wealth, prosperity, some heavy and some light. Some that you could clearly say, heretic. And others you'd go, something just smells wrong. Many say that if you just live faithfully, you can avoid all of this suffering stuff. Guys, that's just a bold-faced lie. Unfortunately, though, this way of thinking has a way of sneaking into our minds even unnoticed. It makes its way into modern Christianese. You know what I mean? Christianese, the, the kind of Christian language that sometimes uh, uh, just wrong thinking even can get couched in, get, get stuck in the way that we tend to talk amongst one another. I've been thinking about this a lot recently because my mind has been in many ways dominated by the pursuit of a new building, a new church home. Trying to find a place that we're going to set up shop to launch our counterattack in this world for kingdom purposes. And every once in a while, we have a prospect come across. It looked like 80-some-odd buildings out there. A prospect will come across. It'll look like it might be a good one. Oh, maybe, that won't, maybe that'll work. Talk to some people about it. Like, what do you think? Maybe this is what the Lord wants, and then he takes it away. One reason or another. That happens. And inevitably, I hear believers say things like this. If it's not that one, God has something better in mind. Brothers and sisters, that is absolutely true. Yes, he does. But maybe our word better isn't the same as his word better. Better might not be at all what you and I have in mind. Better might appear to us to be far worse, far more painful. What do you think of this? 
uh, in, the, in the past couple of months, we've been praying for uh, churches that are going through suffering and all kinds of trials throughout the world. We've even called out particular pastors and churches by name. You might remember that we prayed several times together as a church for Pastor James Coates up in Alberta, Canada. Brother Coates, you know what he wanted to do? You know what, you know what he wanted to do? Share Christian fellowship together and go home to be with his family and then do it again. That's what he wanted, but God had something better in mind. Prison. Prison was better. You know, there's a lot of other pastors out there that are going through similar struggles. Some are not as high profile. You might, you might not even heard the story of Tim Stevens, another pastor in Calgary, Canada. Cops got a hold of his number. Apparently, they called the wrong person first and warned him you're going to get arrested. He wasn't even told. He kept gathering his saints together because they said you couldn't have more than 15 people together in a room. He had like eight kids, so his household already is 10. He can't fit anymore, okay? Like, like he's, he's already at a point that one more, one more household near him is, is already against the law. And he's like, we're going to worship together anyway. He gathered together. Cops finally get his right phone number, call him at church on a Sunday and say, hey, we're giving you a heads up. We're coming to arrest you. Send your kids and wife home so they don't have to watch this happen. And he goes, no way. If you're coming for me, you'll do that in front of my family. I want them to see what you're doing. What do we think about? Is God going, no, 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 no. This isn't the plan. Sometimes getting arrested for the gospel is better. It's better than all the praise from the people around you. You know what might be better than the mission church finding a big, beautiful home to do ministry with for the next 50, 100 years? You know what might be better? It might be better for us to find a home we think we can afford, two years later go bankrupt, and all of us separate out to other churches and build those up to the glory of God. He might want us to not find a home and us have to go to parks and houses. Our picture of better needs to bend to his will and not our own. Yes, he wants better, always. Kids, you need to hear this. Adults, you need to hear this. Suffering for Jesus is better than life. It's better. There's no point we get to heaven, look back and said, God, I see what you were doing there, but there was a better way. We're going to get there and the tears go, oh, that's why I had to suffer for this? Praise be to God. Believers alone can look forward to that vindication. This kind of thinking should not be at all surprising to us. This should be familiar to us. This is literally how our gospel works. The disciples wanted the Messiah, Jesus, to march into Jerusalem, to reestablish his throne, to kick out the Roman occupiers, but God had something better in mind, torture and death. And that was better. You and I must be prepared in our minds and in our hearts for God's plan being much different than what we might prefer. The path of faithfulness may lead us to comfort and prosperity in this life, or it may lead us to death for the glory of Jesus. But it is always better. Here's how he finishes up the list. Verses 39 and 40. 
And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What does this mean? This is the summary point of the whole chapter. We are to emulate the faith of these saints. What does it mean to say that apart from us, that they should not be made perfect? What's what's that all about? They were waiting for a promise that was yet to be fulfilled because it would be fulfilled in Jesus. That happened at a point in history that took place after them in the timeline. You and I come after Jesus. You and I look back to with a clear knowledge and written words of God preserved throughout the ages, inspired by the Spirit, we know of this promise. We have seen him. We know our Lord Jesus. And that's what this means. They did not see Jesus, but we have. If they were able to demonstrate such faith without seeing the promise fulfilled, how much more ought we to remain faithful? If you've been with us, For the last couple of months, three, four, maybe months in Hebrews 11, I have said this in every sermon. The point of Hebrews 11 is to say, if they were faithful and they didn't even know what was coming, how much more should we be faithful now that we know and have seen? That's the point of Hebrews 11. We are to be made perfect together with our Old Testament brothers and sisters, not apart. The story of these Old Testament saints is incomplete apart from the New Testament which is the fulfillment of what they were faithfully waiting for. In other words, their story is not complete apart from our story with it. And this is the big idea. Put your trust in God. Put your trust in God every day. What does God want from us? Easy. Put your trust in him. That's what God wants. Put your faith in him. This is literally how we become Christians. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's what the Bible tells us. If you're here with us today and you've not heard the gospel, you need to know that you are a sinner and because of your sins, God's wrath is set against you. Punishment is due to you for that sin. And the punishment that God has prescribed is death. And more than just momentary death, eternal death, separation from God forever in hell, where Jesus holds the keys. But there is hope for you. Repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. And all of the sins that you have committed and the punishment due for those will be placed on Jesus on the cross and will have been punished. And there will be no double jeopardy in the courtroom of heaven. God will not try you again for what he's already punished Jesus for. By that faith, you can have eternal life. And Jesus raised to new life. He didn't stay in the grave to show, to demonstrate. He had power over death. That you and I, that we will die in the flesh today, will raise to new life as he did. Believe in Jesus. But your faith does not end at conversion. Oh yeah, I remember that time. I remember that time when I had faith. No, it's a daily thing. Everything that you can do can either be done in faith or apart from it. Do you know this? Anything you do can be done in a way that is faithful or a way that is not faithful. Man, it's so often that I have uh, believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, especially younger believers, who are just kind of probing the edges of right and wrong and trying to learn these things. And I'll ask questions all the time. Is it a sin for a Christian to, and they fill in the blank. 
And there's some that are super black and white. Well, the Bible says specifically, don't commit adultery, so don't go do that. Don't steal, so don't do that. Don't murder, so don't do that. Man, there's lots of other things. People ask, is it right for me to do this thing, move to this place, vacate here, spend money in this way, prepare for my family in this way, provide for them this way? There's so many different questions. And oftentimes, you need to acknowledge the answer could be, maybe it could be a sin for you. And maybe it might not be. Romans 14, 23 says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. You can do something that seems otherwise innocuous, but might be an act of unfaithfulness before God, and it's a sin. And you can do other things that the world will look at and go, what's he doing? What's she doing? And done in faith is right before the Lord. Yesterday, I had the honor of speaking at the women's event that we had in this room on anxiety. You can deal with anxious impulses in a way that honors God or in a way that dishonors Him. One of the things we walked through with that. When you have those impulses to respond in a certain way, you can either exercise faith in God, you have an impulse to be anxious, to be worried, fearful about something, you can either choose to trust God in that moment or you can let that impulse drive you to a lack of faith. That's what goes down in our hearts. You may remember that earlier in this chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, the author made the same point as this. He says this in Hebrews eleven six, And without faith, it is impossible to please God. You can't even please God unless you have faith. Everything that you do can either be done in faith or without it. So live according to faith and please God. The Bible tells you what's sin. Do not do what is sin. But there are lots of other things we wonder we are to live in a way that is faithful before the Lord. Oh, goodness. Christian living is so simple. We have the simplest possible charge in front of us. All you have to do is be faithful. That's it. Rich, I don't know what I should do. Be faithful. Sermon done. I'm not going to get off that easy. Leave the rest to God. I've said this story before. I, I've, I've talked to brothers who went through a Marine Corps boot camp with me. Okay, and I, and I remember it was a hardship. It was, tired all the time, hungry all the time, just a physical, emotional, mental battle for three months straight. It was just a rough, rough, rough time. A lot of guys would look back and go, man, that was the hardest, that was the hardest, most difficult season of my life. And I remember running into one Marine one time. He said to me, man, boot camp was the easiest season of my entire life. I was like, what? He goes, yeah, all you had to do is obey the drill instructor. I guess that's one way to look at it. Guys, that's the same with our Christian faith. It's so simple. You and I know it's, it's hard in the moments to battle in our flesh. But in another way, it's so simple. Just have faith in God. But it gets harder when we can't see where he's taken us. What if you trust God for a week and he still doesn't seem to show up? What if you trust God in a difficult circumstance that lasts for a month or a year or a decade? You're still going to trust God? This is a real problem for Western Christians who are predisposed to be impatient. We want everything microwaved. The whole Bible is filled with glorious promises from God, one that we revisit regularly because it's just this great summary statement that you, you ought to memorize. It's Romans 8, 28. God works all things for good for the sake of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. 
Do you believe that? Do you trust what God has said in his word? Many of us will go, well, sure. The word of God does not fix your marriage. What if you're single, and and what if you're praying that God would give you a a godly husband or a godly wife, and he chooses not to? Will you still trust that he's working all things for your good? What if God does not give you that promotion at work? What if he does not soften the heart of your wayward child, beloved family member? What if God does not heal your illness or the illness of a person that you love dearly? Will you still trust him? Will you still believe when years have gone by and he has said no, no, no to your request over and over? Will you still trust him? You see, that's really what this whole chapter is about. Being prepared to trust in God after the lights go out. After it gets cold. After the applause fades and you find yourself alone in a dungeon, chained to the wall. It is not hard to trust God when you're walking between walls of water on your right and on your left. As the Lord is rescuing you out of bondage in Egypt. That's not hard in those moments. Or when you're pursuing your enemy in battle after God killed their champion with a stone. It's not hard to have faith in God in those moments. Man, of course God's working for us. Of course course he's behind us. Of course he's got our good in mind. Look at this. You know, even John the Baptist, who Jesus says was the greatest man born of woman. John the Baptist doubted when he was in prison. He sends his disciples to Jesus. Hey, hey, we, we, we thought you were the Messiah. John just wants to know, are you, are you really Jesus? Are, are you really going to fulfill all the promises? Because you, you, John, that faithful man, your cousin, he's, he's in jail still. And we prayed, but he's still, he's still there. You and I are going to have to confront this. And that's what this chapter's for, to prepare us for that day. Whether the struggle be literally beatings, torture, dungeons, or if it's prayers that seem to go unanswered. Whatever trials we face, are we going to believe? Will we trust our flesh or God? Remember the saints of old. I want to close this morning with three practical things. Things that I hope would be just helpful exercises, helpful things to keep in mind and to apply this week, today. First, read the Old Testament. Read the Old Testament. Get to know these stories. Read the New Testament too. Many believers will go to the New Testament and kind of just vacate. Just not spend a lot of time in the Old Testament. Read those stories. This list, the one that's in all of Hebrews 11, it tells the story of the entire Old Testament. The majority of the story points are in there. If you were to remove the pages of the people and events mentioned in Hebrews 11, if you were to remove those out of the Old Testament, you'd have like three pages left. It's like, it's like all the Old Testament is in there, and he's recalling to memory. Look back at these. Think about these guys. Think about these women. These stories are here for our benefit. You need to read the Old Testament. Read the Old Testament slowly. Try to put yourself in the shoes of the people there. Try to imagine what it would have been like 
to a Philistine or Midianite or Ammonite raiders breaking into your yard and stealing your property any given moment that they want to for decades. Try to imagine what it would have been like to live in a place where literally somebody could come into your home and kill your infant boy at a whim. Imagine what it would have been like to be surrounded by armies that wanted your utter destruction. Put yourself in the shoes of those people there. Imagine what kind of faith it must have taken. It's so easy to kind of have that uh, Sunday school wall art image of the Old Testament stories. But there are some hard stories in there. There are some rough stories. I was reading through the story of Samson with my kids uh, just about, about a few weeks ago, we got to that story again in, in the Bible. And my kids were just repeat one after the other. I said, and then Samson went and killed that whole guy's household. And then Samson went and, and burned down all their houses. And every time I told them something that I read through the story, they go, was that right of him to do? And I was like, I don't know. How about just don't do anything Samson did? <laughs> okay. That's probably a good starting point. And yet he makes it into this list. We don't sugarcoat the Old Testament stories. We read through and we soak them in. Read them to the next generation. Tell the stories to your kids. Name your kids after Old Testament characters. You know, I've met a lot of Joshua's, David's, Sarah's. You don't know a lot of Rahab's. And I'm still waiting for some Christian family to be gutsy enough to name their daughter Jezebel because someone needs to redeem that name. Seriously, somebody needs to have their daughter named Jezebel, so it can be said of her, Jezebel worships and praises Jesus all the days of her life. <laughs> we need to redeem those stories. Even of those unfaithful people of old. Spend time in the Old Testament. That's the first application point. Brothers, sisters, spend time. If you're in Bible study right now with your, with your Christian brothers and sisters, and you're wondering, hey, we're about to wrap up this book. What should we do next? Find a good Old Testament one. Go back into one of those difficult ones. Read through the Judges. Read through the days of the kings. Just soak in those things. Let them wash over you. Imagine the kind of faith it would have taken to live in a day when so many people were set against God. Second, surround yourself with faithful people. The very next verse, which we're going to get into after our pride sermon this next week, we're going to get back into Hebrews chapter 12. The very first verse that comes after this text tells us that because you're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, therefore, we get to move forward. Yes, we do that by way of remembering the faithful saints of old in the Bible, but we do that today in a very practical sense as well. We gather together with people of God. It's actually Hebrews 10 that tells us to not to neglect meeting together. Faithful churches all throughout the world were stubborn enough, even through the COVID time, to go, we're good. we can't not meet together. Why? You can't be alone. You need to surround yourself by faithful people. We are supposed to be encouraged by realizing we are not alone. These texts don't go, look at all these failures. Is there one person who will have faith? The text is, look at all these failures, and yet they have faith. There are no spiritual Rambos. There are no one-man spiritual armies that take on the world just by themselves. That's not the way we're supposed to operate. Surround yourself with faithful people. And notice I said faithful people. Not perfect people. No matter your failures, you can be known as a person of faith 
a sinner whose only hope is in the grace of God. Not in how good you are. Consider the list. Gideon, the warrior of Israel, was first called by God while hiding from his enemy in a wine press like a coward. Jephthah was so impulsive and foolish that he ended up killing his only daughter. Nothing prescriptive in his story there. Barak was such a wimp that God refused to let him get any credit for winning his battle, but instead gave that honor to a housewife who had a jug of milk in one hand and a tent peg in the other. Samson was one of the most dishonorable and dumbest heroes of Israel's history. He broke every promise he ever made. And apart from a few notable moments of faithfulness, there's almost nothing about his life that is worth emulating. Just the fact that he had a few moments of faith. David had one of the most loyal and honorable, distinguished men in his nation murdered because he wanted to sleep with his wife. Let's not remind us of what Jesus said about quantities of faith. How much faith do you need to move a mountain? Mustard seed. That's what we need. You may need to lower your bar for Christian friends, brothers and sisters. You may need to lower that bar. Remember, you're no peach yourself. They're going to have to put up with all of your shenanigans too. Look for a Christian unit. People who will do life alongside of you, be real with you, confront you, be honest about themselves. And if you're already part of a group and this isn't happening, you need to make this happen. You need to get underneath the stuff. You need to go, hey, time out, pause, pause. We've been doing a lot of surfacey stuff here. No more talk about sports. No more talk about vacations. No, no, no more talk about just the surface level stuff. Pause for a second. Let's get deep here. Let's really do life together. Let's consider the actual stories of all of these people. Let them consider yours as well. If you guys aren't in a small group at the Mission Church, you need to get involved with one. You need to find other people around you who will just be real with you, who will preach the gospel to you, who will say, let me tell you what, what, a, what a coward I've been in my life. Let me tell you what, what a sinner I've been in my life. Let me tell you all of my failures, and then let's together celebrate the grace of God that saved me in spite of all of that. Find the stuff that makes being faithful hard for you and be an encouragement to one another. You have got to get together with fellow believers regularly and talk about these kinds of things. You know, it's, it's been my experience that you can find a lot of churches out there that do community reasonably well. And you can find churches out there that hold strongly to sound doctrine. But it does not seem to be very common. But unfortunately, it seems to be difficult to find a church that does both well. I aspire for the mission church to be that. I know our elders want that for this church. Hold doctrine tightly. We care about what we believe. We believe truth matters. We don't compromise in our views of the Bible. But we love people across the spectrum. And wherever you are, if you take your faith seriously, if you take your faith seriously, come with us. Give us the next 10, 15, 20 years of your life to try to convince you about this doctrine. This one that we think is important. You need to surround yourself with faithful people. So the first two, first two application points. Read the Old Testament. That's exactly what's going down here. Reading through the Old Testament. Looking at those saints. Be encouraged. Second, gather yourself around other faithful people. 
Get that cloud of witnesses around you that you can be a mutual encouragement to one another. And third, keep track of how God has been faithful to you. Find ways to remember and praise God for his faithfulness. This might mean you need to write those things down. If you're not a journaler, maybe you should be. Maybe you should open, open your journal some point or if the Lord has been answering a prayer in your life or you've been praying for something that's not yet been answered, it doesn't seem yet, write that down. You'd be surprised how often you go back in like a prayer journal and open up and go, oh my goodness. Look, the Lord answered that and that and that and that. Keep track of how God's been faithful to you. You and I know about these faithful saints of old because it's been written. Keep track of those things on your own. Adorn your home with memorials. You guys have a, a room that needs decorating? D- don't just walk into Hobby Lobby and grab the random piece of art. You got. What, what, if, what if you found something meaningful that represented God's faithfulness? We didn't know what house we were going to buy, and then he showed us this house by these means. And that's why we have that piece of art on that wall. Imagine if your house was a museum that you walked your kids through and you walked uh, neighbors through and people through. Oh, I like that art. Oh, yeah, we got that because after we prayed that God would give us a good pregnancy and that my wife would give birth to a a child without problems, he did that. And that's what that reminds us of because he was faithful. That one over there, that, that candle, that candle is over there because it reminds us of the times that we prayed for something that we wanted and God wanted something different and he didn't answer that prayer. We got this candle to remind us that he's faithful even when he doesn't do what we would prefer. Man, get things around you that remind you of this stuff. Tell the stories of God's faithfulness to your kids or the kids in your life. You don't have kids? There are plenty of kids at the mission church. Go find some and tell them of God's faithfulness. Tell them about what God has done. Don't sugarcoat them. Tell them the wins and the losses, the places that you've done good and the places that you have failed. Because God's faithfulness shines when we are humble and tell of how we are unfaithful and yet he has been faithful. Remember, if you're a believer, you know you are not the hero of your story. So don't try to be. Don't convey your story to make yourself out to be the hero. Make yourself out to be the damsel in distress and tell the story of the white knight who came to your rescue. And we'll do that for all who cries out to him in faith. If you've not shared your testimony with your household, with your kids, you need to do that. And not the polished version. Parents, your kids should be experts in your Christian testimony. Oh my goodness. My father told me his testimony a hundred times. You want to hear it? I'll tell you. This is what went down. Wouldn't that be wonderful for kids to know all about that? And not the polished version, the real one, the real one with your failures. The ones that when you share those stories with your kids, you cry. The ones that make you embarrassed. The ones where you have to think about the age-appropriate way to tell that story for your kid. The one with all the blemishes that makes Jesus the hero. Live as though your story will be written down for generations to read about. You are not perfect, and any re- retelling of your story that's honest will inevitably include some very humbling factoids about your life. But you can be sure to make your life one that is remembered for God's faithfulness to you. And the way that you do that 
is by pointing to how he is deserving of our faith. These heroes are only thought of that because they trusted in their hero. Because they knew that God was the one who was the real hero. Brothers and sisters, I, I just, I lose sleep thinking about what it would be like if believers in Utah actually thought like that. How can I make much of God, not me? How can I build the kingdom, not my little kingdom? How can I do it with honor him more than anyone else in my life? How can I have my life laid down for something eternal in value? The stories that your children and your children's children and the generations after will remember about you will be those in which you submitted yourselves in faith to God. Let us be remembered for that. Let's pray. Father, this morning I pray that you would teach us how to be people who care more about you getting honor and glory than anything else. Every day of our lives would be an act of faith that we would, we would learn ways to tear down and destroy the faithfulness in our lives and that we would be built up in our faith towards you. Lord, I, I know that we need help in this and so compel us to open the Bible and be encouraged to repeat stories of faithfulness. Encourage us to gather around other believers in our lives where we can help encourage them in faithfulness and we can see in them their faithfulness and multiply those faithful acts. And Father, I pray that you'd help us to never remember when you've been faithful. Lord, help us to right now be good about calling to memory the things we de you deserve praise and honor for, the ways you have answered prayers, the ways you have shown up in spite of all of our folly. Let us be so quick to remember even the folly of our past that we may give you worship and praise for what you have done. Teach us to be a body of believers that collectively refuses to make much of self and instead makes much of you. And Lord, please do for us what this text is supposed to do. Prepare us for whatever kinds of struggles or suffering might be ahead. We embrace it. We receive it. We accept, Lord, whatever you are bringing to us. Get us ready for it. Prepare our hearts so that when it comes, you may see, receive your due glory and praise that those watching around would say, what is with these Christians who trust their God when it gets dark? Lord, we love you. You are deserving of that kind of honor and praise. Draw it from our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.